Well, good morning. You know, someday we're going to have resurrected bodies and glorified bodies, and we won't have colds and sore throats. But until then, we have water. Turn in your Bibles with me to um, Luke 23. Luke 23. Page uh, 858, if you're using our Bibles here. Well, there's nothing more important than celebrating what we do in these last several days, that Christ died for our sins. He took our place on the cross. And then he was resurrected so that the debt he paid was stamped, paid forever. Nothing's more important than that. So it all depends on the resurrection. I'm sure we said that many, many times. Luke 24 is the story of the resurrection, but we're going to start with and look mostly at Luke 23, the last uh, several paragraphs just before he arose. We're going to look at some snapshots of some people who somehow managed to trust God, worship God, when Jesus was dead, when hope seemed gone. We love to celebrate that Jesus conquered death, but what was it like to trust God in those hours on Friday afternoon and Saturday? Because so much of our life, we live in a state of fear and lost hope. We, we fear the cancer scan that they're going to be taken. We, we fear, you know, What about our maybe adult children who don't share the faith that means so much to us? We fear uh, or lose hope when we see the moral decline of our our culture and we go, man, I'm I'm, I'm trying to vote for my Christian values and just doesn't seem like we're getting anywhere. What do we do when we're losing hope in our marriages? We live on the edge of losing hope so often. And I am just so amazed by these kind of neglected but amazing examples of some godly people whose story we are told between the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and gives us some hope for what do we do when we don't know what God is doing? What do we do when hope seems to be gone? Will we despair at what God has allowed? We're going to pick it up with the account of his death briefly in verse 44. Now it was about the sixth hour and darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour. That's uh, sixth hour is noon. And so from noon to three, the sky was dark. For the sun stopped shining and the curtain or veil of the temple was torn in two. And Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And when he had said this, he breathed his last. So Jesus was actually on the cross six hours, crucified at 9 a.m. At noon, the sixth hour, since they start counting the time from uh, sunrise, six hours is noon. And so the sun stopped shining, and at 3 p.m., Jesus died, and with that came the curtain or veil torn in two. Matthew 27 adds that the veil was torn from top to bottom. 
Clearly, it's God who tore the temple veil. From top to bottom, and that curtain was up to maybe four inches thick. This was the veil that separated between the holy place and the holy of holies inside the temple. So it was protecting people from dying, the priests from dying, if they dare go into the holy of holies, because only the high priest could go there only one day a year on the Day of Atonement to bring that sacrifice of blood to the Ark of the Covenant. So it was a protection, but now there was no protection because, in fact, Hebrews 10.20 says, Jesus provided a new and living way which is open to the presence of of God. It is finished forever. And so the ceremonial law and the temple itself had really reached its expiration date. The complete actual payment for our sin had been paid. And then Jesus called with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. You realize he gave his life. They didn't take it from him. For God so loved the world, he gave Jesus, and Jesus on the cross, he gave his life. I commit your spirit, my spirit, and he breathed his last. We know as we read this, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, we know Jesus will rise. And so when we read about this, we're, it's like we're reading an introduction to the resurrection. We're just like getting ready for it, right? But what's it like when you are there and you don't know there will be a resurrection? Hope was humanly gone. And so we're going to look at these three snapshots. The centurion who crucified Jesus, Joseph of Arimathea who buried Jesus, and then the women who came to anoint, prepared to anoint his body on, uh, on, on Friday. And then what did they do on Saturday? Verse 47, the centurion. The centurion, seeing what had happened, praised God and said... Surely this was a righteous man. He praised God. The centurion is worshiping God. Who is this guy? The centurion is a Roman, a Gentile. He's a a leader of soldiers, a hundred soldiers. That's why it's called a centurion, like century, centurion. And he was the one tasked with doing the crucifixion. But when Jesus died, he's the one that says, Wait a minute, this was a righteous man. Or in Matthew 27, we find that uh, uh, not only had he said that, he said, this is, truly this was the Son of God. So there's something has happened to the centurion, and the crucifier has become a worshiper. Isn't that so like God? The crucifier became a worshiper. And so no matter what our background is, no matter what we've done, we can become worshipers when the man who was in charge of the crucifixion was actually the one who became a worshiper. When he saw what had happened, well, what did he see? He not only saw that Jesus died, he saw the sun was dark, he saw the veil was torn. Matthew 27 adds, there was an earthquake, and it says the bodies of some holy people who had died were raised to life. I mean, this is like everything is happening at once and, and the sun is darkened for three hours. And he goes, this was the son of God. It was no, it was no uh, secret that Jesus claimed to be God, nor 
was it uh, any secret that he had backed up those claims? He backed up those claims by saying and doing things that only God could do. But suddenly at this moment, this man believed it. He's righteous. A terrible revelation that I just crucified him. And he's God's son. How can that be? These are, these are irreconcilable things that are going on in his mind. What do I do when I can't make sense of the fact that Jesus was the Son of God, and yet I just killed the Son of God? So there's a lot of chaos, confusion, unanswered questions in his mind. He had no answer. This made no sense. So what did he do? What can you do when you can't make sense of what's happening? He worshiped. He worshiped. It's remarkable. It's remarkable. Worship is what we can and must do when we don't know what God is doing. Worship is what we must do when we don't know what God is doing. Years ago, a missionary friend of mine was going through a season where uh, several of his children uh, were making wrong choices, let's just say, okay? And it really broke his heart But he said, you know what got me through that season? Worship. When I could not control my children's choices, all I could control is the fact that God deserves to be worshipped. Worship is what we can do when we don't know what to do or what God is doing. And we're all going to face those shocking moments in life. Will those hard things in our life, when we cannot fix or control something, cause us to try to fix and control them more or to worship the one who has all things in control. There's an amazing principle I see we're going to see in each of these three snapshots of people. And that is simply this. If the centurion could worship God when facing irreconcilable horrific facts, if the centurion could worship God when Jesus was dead, How much more should we worship him when we know he is alive? We live after the resurrection. We we know that Christ conquered. We know that Christ gives victory. We live after the resurrection. Will we trust God to do what is right when they were able to trust God when, when Jesus was dead before the resurrection? So verses 48 and 49 then take us to what's going on around him and the the response of the crowds. Verse 48. When all the people had gathered to witness this sight and saw what took place, they beat their breasts and went away. But all those who knew him, including the women who had followed him from Galilee, stood at a distance watching these things. In verse 47, 48, and 49, there's a reference each time to all these things. So who all saw the fact that the sun went dark, the veil was torn, the earthquake, and all of that stuff? The centurion saw it and worshipped. The crowd, it says they were beating their breasts. That's, their, that's, that's fear, that's guilt, that's, that, that's, that's this trauma. But they didn't worship. The centurion worshiped, they didn't worship. And what about the women? We're going to meet them again a little later on. The women were watching. They were deciding, what are we going to do with the fact that the one we thought was our Savior has died? So we meet another godly person as we come to verses 50 to 53. Joseph of Arimathea. The centurion worshipped. What did Joseph do? 
Now there was a man named Joseph, a member of the council, a good and upright man, who had not consented to their decision and action. He came from the Judean town of Arimathea, and he was waiting for the kingdom of God. Going to Pilate, he asked for Jesus' body. Then he took it down, wrapped it in a linen cloth, and placed it in a tomb cut in the rock, one in which no one had yet been laid. So he honored Jesus, although Jesus had died. He honored Jesus, although he was unable to stop the crucifixion. He's from some little town called Arimathea. We don't even know where it is, but it's in Judea, it says, of course. And he was a guy who was waiting for the kingdom of God. This is marking him as a believer, because like Simeon, who held baby Jesus, looking for the kingdom of God, it seems that Joseph knew this was the Messiah. He had believed in Jesus' claims that he was really the Messiah. Kind of remarkable, because he was part of this select group that was not known for approving of Jesus, the council. The council is the Sanhedrin, which is a 70-member body that is basically the Jewish Supreme Court. The Supreme Court would convene with Jews coming representatives from all over Israel, and they would come together to make decisions about that would govern the Jewish people. So Rome is in charge of everything, but the Sanhedrin controlled Israel, but there was one decision they could not make. They could not put someone to death. There's a body of Jews that had very diverse opinions. There were Pharisees and Sadducees, so they disagreed on some major things, including doctrinal things like, is there a resurrection or not? So they were used to a lot of conflict, but they actually were all in agreement for killing Jesus, except this guy, except Joseph. And this Supreme Court, we know, met early on Friday morning to plan their case before Pilate because they would have to get Rome's uh, uh, permission and Pilate would have to be the one to declare the execution of Jesus. But the vote on the Sanhedrin was not unanimous because Joseph did not consent. And we can rightly assume that Nicodemus didn't consent either. He was part of that Sanhedrin and we find uh, elsewhere that it's Joseph and Nicodemus who actually do the burial together. So 70 people, the vote was maybe 68 to 2. Not a, great, not a great conclusion, right? He did not consent, but he failed to stop the majority of the Sanhedrin from crucifying Jesus. Evil men won. So what did he do? He says, I don't know what's happening. I don't know what God is doing. I believe this man to be the Messiah. But I'm going to do the next thing. I'm going to honor Jesus and bury him properly. He's not thrown in some grave of the criminals. And so he courageously goes to ask for Jesus' body. We were told in uh, John 19 that Joseph had been a secret follower of Christ initially. I mean, to be a part of the Sanhedrin who was opposing Christ, he, he just kind of kept his mouth shut for a while. Not anymore. He goes all in, he goes to Pilate, he said, I don't care who knows that I'm on the side of Jesus Christ, even though he is dead. So he didn't know what God was doing. You know what else Joseph didn't know? He didn't know he was fulfilling scripture. Because Isaiah 53 verse 6 says that Jesus would be buried in a rich man's tomb. Matthew 27 tells us that Joseph was a rich man. That's why he had the tomb, evidently. 
And so he didn't know that his righteous voice would have to be squelched and he'd have to lose so that Jesus Christ would win the victory over death and the grave. We know now that Jesus had to die. That means he had to be buried. And God had predicted through Isaiah exactly how he'd be buried. So it says he was, laid in a, he was, he was buried in a tomb in which no one had yet been laid. That, that's actually very important. Their family tombs often have several crypts. But this has to be a, a brand new empty tomb. So on Easter Sunday morning, there would be no mistaking the fact that that. It was Jesus' body that was missing. It's not like, oh, maybe that was that body or this body. No, it was an empty tomb. So God's plan was a fresh tomb. And it would remain only lightly used, just a two-night stay. But it would become that evidence that we still picture Easter Sunday. We, we picture that, that empty tomb. It was undeniable. Joseph didn't know all the... Joseph, Joseph didn't know that him losing in the Sanhedrin was part of God's plan for winning. But he would not stop honoring God in spite of his personal confusion. You know, as Christians, sometimes we can feel really put down. We can be on the right side of an issue, on the wrong side of a, of a vote. Is it, do we have a trust in the sovereignty, the providence of God when we know that Christ wins, if, if Joseph could be faithful to Jesus when he was dead, how much more? Can we be faithful, trusting in the plan of God when Jesus is alive? Before the resurrection, the centurion worshipped. Before the resurrection, this Joseph Honored Jesus. We know Jesus is alive. We know Jesus will win everything. We know justice will prevail. If Joseph could honor Jesus, could honor God and Jesus when Jesus was dead, how much more should we? One more snapshot. Luke gives us uh, a story of these women. Remember, they had stood at a distance, they watched everything that was happening on the cross. They saw the sun darkened. They saw the veil. They heard about the veil torn, and they, they felt the earthquake. They probably knew about those resurrections, the people who'd come out of those tombs. Verse fifty-four. It was preparation day, and the Sabbath was about to begin. That's Friday. Preparation day, Friday. Sabbath, Saturday. The women who had come with Jesus from Galilee followed Joseph and saw the tomb. And how his body was laid in it. So they were at the cross, and now they followed Joseph as he goes to bury Jesus. Then they went home and prepared spices and perfumes. But they rested on the Sabbath in obedience to the commandment. The women served Jesus and obeyed God's word, even though all hope seemed gone, even though Jesus was dead. So it's, it's preparation day, and so that's Friday, but then we find out what happened on Saturday. What happened on Saturday? Nothing. They rested in obedience to the commandment. Uh, many of you know last fall that uh, 
uh, Pastor Seth, Pastor Nate and Michelle and myself went to a pastor's conference in Dallas. And, and the message that, that had the most impact on me was a, a pastor, Philip Pointer, out of Little Rock, Arkansas, that uh, basically his whole message was about these women here in these verses. And he used this little phrase, don't skip Saturday. I, I, I thought, I usually skip Saturday because this whole week is about, you know, he died on the cross on Friday, he rose on Sunday. What about Saturday? Because Saturday is when everyone's faith was tested. The disciples went into hiding. They thought they're going to be next. They were afraid. Fear, fear will cause us to like sometimes abandon everything that we believe because, oh no, my world is falling apart. The disciples thought, we don't know what we're going to do. We can, go, we can go to do Bible studies for decades and decades. And we know about Moses. We know about Joshua. We know about David. We know about Daniel. We know all the ways that God has been faithful over and over and over in their crisis in the Bible. But what about ours? We can know the promises of God. But we can, be, we can fail to believe the promises of God when we're the one feeling the stress. The disciples were living in fear. So while the disciples went into hiding, the women simply went into action doing the next thing that they thought would be faithfulness to Jesus and faithfulness to God. These are the women who came with him from Galilee. Back in chapter 8 of Luke, Luke named some of these women um, Mary Magdalene, Joanna, the wife of Chusa, the manager of Herod's household, Susanna, and many others. It says these women were helping to support them out of their own means. So there's, there was this, this traveling team. The disciples, the twelve, and then the women who were traveling along with Jesus during this time, and they were supporting Jesus and the disciples out of their own financial means. And for example, this, this Joanna was the wife of a, of a high official in Herod's court. They had the money to actually support Jesus and the disciples. These women heard all the sermons that the twelve did. They saw blind eyes see. They saw lame people walk. They were there in the little town of Nain when this widow's son had died and Jesus raised that young man from the dead so he could, he could support his widowed mom again. They were there when Jairus' daughter was raised. That's Luke 7 and Luke 8. We assume they were there as well when Lazarus was raised, John 10. But did they assume that Jesus would be raised? See, that's the thing where we can know the promises of God, but when it becomes our crisis, do we believe the promises of God? Because fear clouds our faith. So what can we do when hope seems gone? They, they followed. They did the next thing. Joseph had stuck his neck out courageously to ask for the body. And so the women, they follow. So, and they prepare spices and perfumes. First part of verse 56 is Friday evening because you aren't supposed to do that kind of work on the Sabbath. 
So they prepare the body. These are not spices that were essential for burying because, in fact, Joseph and Nicodemus took care of that process. Uh, This was simply the women's way of honoring their friend. They had devoted the last three years following Jesus. They believed in Jesus. They believed that Jesus could give them eternal life. How confused must they be on Friday and Saturday? That the one in whom they trusted for eternal life had died. How can someone who's dead give eternal life? What had failed in God's plan? Was their faith misplaced? Had they wasted the last three and a half years following Jesus? Had they wasted the many shekels they invested in supporting a man's ministry who was now dead? God's promises seem broken sometimes. In a way, every heartache that you might have come in with this morning is a test in your heart. Do you believe in the goodness of God? Because we will feel the contradiction in our own personal experiences over and over and over when the promises of God don't match our reality. The disciples went away in fear of hiding. Much respect to these women who through their tears decided to honor their dead friend. And the last line of verse 56 tells us something rather remarkable if we consider it carefully. But they rested on the Sabbath in obedience to the commandment. They rested on the Sabbath in obedience to the commandment. The fourth commandment said, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. And they said, we're going to do that even though God has failed us, it feels. We're going to keep the commandment even though Jesus is dead. You could say if there's ever a time you could have excused disobedience, it's when you are so disillusioned with God that you had believed that you were with the Son of God, you were believing that he was the Messiah, you were believing he could give you eternal life, and God disappointed and failed you. So why should I obey him? Hey, if I want to go bring spices on the Sabbath, I'll do it on the Sabbath. I don't care what the commandment of God says anymore. When all hope was gone, they still honored God by obeying God's word. They didn't abandon obedience to God just because it felt like God had abandoned them. So often we become disillusioned when God allows hard things in our lives, and our disillusionment can become almost like an excuse to protest with, with, with rebelling against God. Like, what, what's it worth? I followed God, and look what happened. Look what he allowed. If anyone had the right to feel that way, it was them. But when all hope was gone, they still obeyed the commandment. It reminds me of Job in the Old Testament. Talk about a man who went through suffering. He had many speeches, if you've read the book of Job or tried to get through the whole book, there's all these speeches where Job defends himself and where his so-called friends uh, accuse him. Job's wife had said, just curse God and die. And his so-called friends told Job, it's all your fault. I don't know which is worse. Your wife saying, give up on God, or your friends saying, it's all your fault. But we find that what he did is he said, 
Oh, well, I'll read it to you. Job 13, 15. Though he slay me, yet I will trust him. Though he slay me, yet I will trust him. Can you put that together? If the worst thing happens, Job says, I will still trust him. This this didn't solve things. He still had these, these chapters of discussion with God. But though he slay me, yet will I trust him. In Job 1.22, in all this, Job did not sin by what he said. I said. He said, as much as I'm suffering, as much as I don't understand what God is doing, what God is allowing, it will not become an excuse for sin. He refused to let that happen. We don't have to understand. We just have to trust and obey. And that's what these women did on that Saturday. There's never a, greater t- there's never a more important time to obey, in fact, than when things are going wrong. It'll be our greatest test of obedience. It's when our view of God is in contradiction with our our circumstances. And so yet one more time, our lesson is this. If the women could trust and obey God when Jesus was dead, if the women will follow the commandments when their hope was gone, how much more can we trust him when we know that Jesus is alive? He's alive when you struggle with whatever suffering there is, whatever tragedy we have experienced. He is alive, and we know we can trust him. And so that actually brings us to the resurrection story of Luke 24. Let's read verses 1 through 8. On the first day of the week. So it's Sunday now. Very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared, and they went to the tomb. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb. The stone was rolled away? There's so much... You could tell of this, and I'd encourage you at Easter time to read through some of those last chapters of all four of the Gospels. They'll fill in blanks of exactly what this was all about. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And while they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them, and in their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground. But the men said to them, angels that is, Why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He is risen. Remember how he told you when he was still with you in Galilee, the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again? Ah, then they remembered his words. Jesus actually had told the disciples, and these women were there, But it just didn't compute. This promise of God was just so great they could not even comprehend it until it actually happened. So he arose and confirmed that he alone is the one who can give us eternal life. The whole gospel message depends upon the message of the cross and the empty tomb because, in fact, we are saved by faith in Jesus' death and resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15. By this gospel you are saved. If you hold firmly to the word I preached to you, otherwise you have believed in vain. Do you see the two choices here? You can believe in a falsehood or you can believe in the truth. There's, gospel means good news. There's only one gospel that can save you from the penalty of your sin forever. There's only one good news message that can give you eternal life in heaven. But you have to make sure you're putting your faith in the right thing. Otherwise, you believed in vain. So what is it? 
the next verses. For I received what I passed on of first importance, that Christ died for our sins, the cross, according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, and then to the twelve, and it lists actually many others. The only way to be saved is to put your faith in Jesus Christ, that he died for your sins, and he rose again. If you're trusting in anything else, you're trusting in something that cannot save you. So what are you trusting in for eternal life? Go back in chapter 23 of Luke. I'm going to leave these verses up here for a moment. But just before where we started in verse 44, we are told about the, the two thieves, the criminals that were crucified with Jesus, right? What happened during those first three hours on the cross was a conversation where one of these thieves had a change of heart. Verse 39, one of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him, aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence? We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, this man turns to Jesus. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered him, I tell you the truth. Today, you will be with me in paradise. I love that story because if it is like the most simple description of what does it mean to believe in the right thing. And the remarkable thing about this thief is kind of like the other examples we read this morning. This criminal believed in Jesus before the resurrection. And Jesus said, you're going to be in heaven with me today. Why? Simply because you asked to put your faith in me. How little did he know about Jesus except that he believed Jesus was the Son of God and could give him eternal life. And Jesus says, got it. Today you will be with me in paradise. I think the thief on the cross clarifies a lot of confusion, the major confusion about religion in the world because the religion of the world, under any label, has always been saying, do this, do this, do this, do enough of these things, and you might get to heaven. Try really hard. What did the thief have an opportunity to do? Nothing. He had, no, he had no opportunity to do good works. He had no opportunity to be baptized. He had no opportunity to, 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 to take communion. In fact, in contrast to doing good works, all he had on his record, I mean, he's a bad guy. They don't just crucify you for nothing, except for Jesus. So he was a bad guy, and so he had nothing to offer. No promises to make. But he simply put his faith in Jesus Christ. And Jesus says, that's it. Today, no purgatory, no delay, because you were kind of a bad guy. But today you'll be with me in paradise because we are saved by faith and faith in Christ alone. So the question is, what are you trusting in for eternal life? Are you trusting in Christ 
that he died for your sins and rose again? Or have you somehow developed in your mindset that there's, surely there's got to be more than that. Don't you have to also be a really good person? Are you trusting in Christ and Christ alone? On the cross, Jesus paid the penalty for your sin. All of your sin was put on Jesus, and God the Father punished Jesus on the cross. Christ died for your sins and rose again. And then he arose. By this gospel, you are saved. By this gospel, you are saved. Which gospel? Christ died for your sins and rose again. If you have any questions about whether you have placed your faith in Christ, whether you'll be in heaven one moment after you die, Easter Sunday would be a fantastic time to get that settled. And I would encourage you to talk with uh, me or Pastor Nate or someone here you know or call us this week. We'd love to help clarify that for you. It's been so exciting to hear uh, testimonies and and uh, in the next service, we'll be able to hear some more testimonies of, of people who have come to faith in Christ and, and then illustrating it with the fact that just as Jesus died and rose again, we rise to new life, and he's the one who changes our life. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we just thank you so much for your great power to save. We, um, we go through so many things, Lord Jesus, where we, we don't really understand what you're doing. We we, uh, we fear, we lose hope, we believe your promises, and then we doubt your promises. You know our fickle faith, and yet, God, you have been so faithful. Helps to think through, and, and uh, whatever struggle someone's going through here, that we'd either look to uh, how you've been faithful in the past, or look to your promises, and trust you to be faithful in the present and in the future. Thank you that you have secured for us eternal life. You've taken care of the most important issue of all and that you have provided the way through your son's death on the cross and resurrection. In Jesus' name, amen.